You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. I'm not cold at anything you want. Old-fashioned or what? I love you first. As you. To me, it... To me, you know? If you love me, you'll understand what I mean. Due to its raggedly independent origins, the film's production endured a rather unconventional and drawn-out path from photography to release, even undergoing several title changes in the process. What began as Bring on the Dancing Girls eventually became I Call First during its initial release. When Scorsese secured a distribution deal that required a rather significant shift in tone, the title changed once more to Who's That Knocking at My Door? Just as the frequent retitling was the byproduct of an underdeveloped distribution plan, so too was his uneven, at times meandering plot a result of shifting narrative intentions, natural creative rediscovery, and unnatural meddling from outside parties. The general framework details youth culture in the insular world of Little Italy, concerned with the plight of a young hood named J.R., who spends his days raising hell with his no-good buddies and his nights getting his kicks with an endless rotation of girls. The part is played quite authentically by Harvey Keitel, whose fateful answering of Scorsese's ad in show business weekly would lead to a long working relationship, as well as a deep friendship. Indeed, without Who's That Knocking at My Door, there's no Harvey Keitel, Before being cast, the struggling young actor was working as a court stenographer and about ready to give up on his silver screen dreams altogether. Keitel's natural charisma and boyish vulnerability goes a long way towards making such an openly misogynistic protagonist remotely watchable. J.R.'s head is often in the clouds, dreaming about something better than the aimless, drunken carousing and meaningless sex that fills his days and his nights. If anything, his journey is one of enlightenment towards the fairer sex, transformed by his relationship with a virginal blonde he meets on the Staten Island Ferry, the first of many golden-haired visions that would come to populate Scorsese's canon. Played by Zena Bethune, her character is arguably the single most transformative element as it pertains to Scorsese's overall vision. The romantic subplot she anchors gives J.R.'s journey direction, offering up enough dramatic opportunity to justify the project's transition from short to feature. Though Scorsese elects not to give Bethune's character a name, in the process reinforcing the reductive attitude towards women that his story labors against, she makes a distinct impression on J.R., and by extension, the audience. They come from totally different worlds, but they are able to bond over, quite expectedly, their shared passion for cinema. A relatively simple narrative told in an endlessly complex fashion, Who's That Knocking at My Door remains relevant to modern audiences with its provocative insights into the double standards that dominate men's relationship with women. Considering the contemporary movement to expose rape culture and its enablers, the film has lost none of its relevancy in depicting that particular form of masculine entitlement, responsible for the perpetuation of women's objectification. A major turning point in J.R.'s relationship with the girl comes when he expresses his desire to marry her, which prompts her to reveal her darkest secret, that she is a victim, no, a survivor, of date rape. 
J.R.'s initial reaction is one of disgust. Unable to deal with the revelation emotionally, he storms off into the night for a round of rowdy partying with friends. Come morning, he's come to his senses and returns to say, rather boorishly, that he's forgiven her. Only, it's not forgiveness that the girl wants. The chaos of Scorsese's storyline is reflected in the chaos of its production, or perhaps the former is a direct byproduct of the latter. Like a city built atop the ruins of another, new scenes and entire subplots are grafted by editor Thelma Schoonmaker onto the foundations of earlier conceptions of the story. Beyond the relative disorganization of his artistic process, a chief reason why production went on for so long was simply that life was happening to the burgeoning young director. In May of 1965, he married his first wife, Lorraine Marie Brennan, and by December they had a daughter, Catherine. In short order, however, Scorsese's marriage began to unravel, and months would go by between the shooting of scenes. Keitel would ultimately join Scorsese in his accidental bachelor pad, sleeping on a cot in the living room while they worked out the next round of shooting. Considering all this, the cinematography of Who's That Knocking Out My Door varies quite greatly throughout its brisk running time. Michael Wadley and Richard Cole are credited as the directors of photography, shooting on a mix of 35mm and 16mm black-and-white film. At first glance, Scorsese's stylistic approach here reads like a grab bag of French New Wave tricks. Handheld camera work, jump cuts, fast pacing, cross-cutting, non-chronological ordering, and impressionistic flourishes like a party sequence rendered in slow motion. Cassavetti's shadows, so formative an influence on young Scorsese's decision to pursue filmmaking as a career, proves an equally outsized influence on the ascetic style of his debut, imprinting itself on every frame. Scorsese is credited with helping to popularize the use of contemporary rock music in modern American cinema, and Who's That Knocking at My Door gives us our first glimpse at the young director's musical affectations. He populates the soundtrack with several jukebox and doo-wop hits. They may sound antiquated to us today, but back in the 1960s, these songs had the establishment clutching their proverbial pearls, full of vitality, energy, and rebellious spirit. In a filmography defined by the distinct milieu of New York-based Italian-Americans and Catholic obsessions with redemption and guilt, Who's That Knocking at My Door is easily the bluntest of the bunch, hammering home its theme with extended montages of old-world religious iconography, cathedrals, statues of Mary, Christ on the cross, prayer candles, etc. It also sees prototypes of Scorsese's signature style, with images of messy violence and a cameo appearance from his larger-than-life mother Catherine. While later films would tackle these subjects in greater depth, Who's That Knocking at My Door gives a particularly pointed demonstration of the Madonna whore complex so prevalent throughout the culture he was raised in. It's a conceit deeply rooted in the patriarchal structures of his heritage, wielding religious dogma in a way that reduces women into a saint or sinner binary, thus limiting their sphere of influence to domestic and familial matters. Of the Scorsese protagonists molded in this vein, a major component of their journey is an inevitable conflict between their perception and the actual, fully-rounded humanity of their chosen mate. Who's That Knocking at My Door establishes the mold, with the girl appearing like a vision out of a crowd, a blonde who promises to be his salvation from a brutal world. Ultimately, though, he runs up against reality. She's only human, after all, and he can't reconcile the flaws he perceives with the unrealistic standards he imposes on her. That the archetype appears again and again throughout his films speaks to the central struggle that animates his artistry, a turbulent battle between the patriarchal old world and the progressive dreams of the new. Indeed, it was the addition of this somewhat romantic subplot that makes Who's That Knocking at My Door actually work. The earliest version of the film, before Bethune's character was incorporated, screened at the Biograph Theater in Chicago, the same one where John Dillinger was killed. 
This first cut met a similar end, shot down by an uncaring and unmoved audience. To his credit, Scorsese refused to accept failure, taking on even more strain and pressure by shooting the additional Bethune material even though he couldn't afford it. The film processing was again paid for by his ever-supportive father. Though this version premiered at the Chicago Film Festival the following year, even earning praise from a young Roger Ebert, the film still wasn't technically finished. $37,000 was needed to properly complete Scorsese's hard-fought debut, and the only option that presented itself was via Mnugin's connection to the exploitation distributor Joseph Brenner. He agreed to put Who's That Knocking at My Door in theaters on one condition, that Scorsese add a gratuitous, explicit sex scene with nudity. Whether or not he actually agreed with Brenner's mandate, Scorsese hastily shot the scene while abroad in Amsterdam, and spliced it rather haphazardly into the final edit. After years of sweat, blood, and tears, the final version of Who's That Knocking at My Door debuted in 1970 at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, and Scorsese's gambles and compromises finally began to pay off. Its performance at the box office has long since ceased to be relevant. The quantity of seats filled didn't matter as much as the quality of the people filling them. Towards that end, the film had an influential fan in the form of indie iconoclast Roger Corman, who managed to convert John Cassavetes into a fellow believer. Imagine a young Scorsese's utter elation upon hearing the news that Cassavetes, a personal hero whose work catalyzed his own journey towards a film career, compared his debut favorably to a work no less monumental than Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. As dramatic, or a touch hyperbolic as Cassavetes' assertion may be, he nonetheless had a visceral reaction to the heart and passion immediately evident in Scorsese's film. The exchange would soon grow into a formative relationship, with the hero becoming the mentor, and ultimately, a very dear friend. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.